Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Harley Redlick. Harley is an expert in the sports betting industry as a consultant, a gaming law professor, and a professional sports gambler. He has seen it all in our Ontario sports betting landscape as it has moved from a black market to a gray market to a now legal and regulated industry. The founder of consultancy Sharp Edge Picks, Harley is also a man of letters with a degree in economics, a law degree, and an MBA. He has combined his theoretical book skills with years of practical experience to take an analytical, logic-based approach to sports betting, bringing an objective viewpoint to a gambling industry often driven by emotion. Harley has recently launched the Gaming Law Certificate Program at York University's Osgoode Hall Law School, where he applies George Costanza's dating strategy to the general betting public. Do the opposite. He has even developed his own Ten Commandments of Successful Sports Betting, which we shall imminently dive into. Welcome, Harley, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I'm great. I'm in Toronto. I'm in my condo where I live with my wife and son. My wife is out at work. My son is back at school and happy, so everything's good. I want to start, if we may, by you providing a brief primer or overview of Ontario's sports gambling industry and how that landscape has changed over time. It has changed very dramatically over time. So until the early 90s, the market was, as you said, black and only black. By black, we mean bookmakers on the street, people you know, a guy who knows a guy. That market, as we're going to discuss, still thrives. Bookmakers on the street give you credit, meaning you don't have to put up the cash up front like you would at a casino, whether it's online or a sports book. They give you credit and bonuses. They don't have to spend as much on legal and regulatory, so a lot goes back to the consumer. In the early 90s, the Ontario government got into the sports betting business, launching what was called ProLine. A lot of people are familiar with the product if they live in Ontario or if they live elsewhere in Canada or even in the United States. They had a similar product in Delaware. It was parlay betting. They took extra vague. It's the lottery corp, so their goal is to make 40% margins, as we'll discuss in this business, online operators are usually happy. A 7% margin is phenomenal for them. So it was a different type of product, but a legal product. In the 90s and in the 2000s, operators started setting up shop in some of the islands. This business has been legalized in England for a long, long time. I want to say since the 1960s. And shops such as Bet365 that were legal in England started operating in Canada. Single sports betting was illegal in Canada in the criminal constitution. This dates back from uh, inception because of the fear of match fixing. That's why the Ontario government was doing parlay betting. But what Bet365 was doing was offering bets to Canadians. They were often funded with Canadian credit and debit cards. And they were operating from overseas, so they thought they were okay with that jurisdiction. That's what we refer to as the gray market. When I talk about Bet365, that's a proxy for the industry on a whole. Betway was doing it. The Ganawaki sports interaction is slightly different. They were located within Canada on native reserves. I brought in their guest, uh, their lawyer, Murray Marshall, who used to speak at our conferences, and he explained 
that lacrosse is actually a native word for little brother of war and explained they were wagering well before the white man came to North America. And for that reason, they felt they had a commercial legal claim. And they were always treated a little bit differently. Even Rogers, who would take ads from Bet365, would only do it on the Play for Free sites. They treated SIA or the native offerings as slightly different. That's where we were for a long, long time, 20 plus years. And then about shortly after the U.S. Supreme Court decided to legalize sports betting in places outside of Nevada, and then New Jersey went live and Pennsylvania went live, and now you can bet in about half of the U.S. states. It's a state-by-state decision. Canada got rid of that criminal code banning single event sports wagering. And shortly thereafter, Ontario jumped in with full-fledged legalized sports betting online, meaning all the big boys that we know of, DraftKings and FanDuel, plus the old gray market, Bet365 and Betway, plus the score. And I think right now there's 30 operators operating with legal licenses in Ontario. There's a few gray market guys still around. Bodog never went the legal route and still exists. There's a few like Pinnacle that went legal a little while later, but they're legal. The Ontario government is still offering ProLine both at the store with reduced odds and online and trying to compete. Gateway Casino is offering brick and mortar product at their casinos where you bet basically in a kiosk. You can put in a few dollars up to $500 and make a bet. If you like the paper tickets and you want to bet at a casino, and you can do this on a single event sport. You can do this on futures. You can do this on parlays. You can bet the NFL. You can bet props. You can bet U.S. Open tennis. You can bet pretty much whatever you want. Actually, you can even bet the U.S. presidential election, which right now is illegal to bet in the United States. It is legal in a lot of jurisdictions, and it is legal right now in Ontario. Well, that's a very unique one. And- Harley, when you talk about things changing in Ontario, I believe the start date was April of last year. So we got about 18 months of data into this regulated market. What is your viewpoint of the market 18 months in? So you're correct. It's been 18 months. I'm surprised at how many operators there are competing in this marketplace because the fixed cost and the regulatory hurdles are prohibitive. Each jurisdiction has their own rules. Ontario has some very funky rules about what's allowed and not allowed in advertising that causes most people in the industry to scratch their heads and the interpretations are vague. So I assume that some of the smaller guys, a couple of them have already gone bust. I would assume that will happen over time. The market opened up with a bang, tons of bonuses, tons of offers. It was harder for a lot of the big guys to compete the way they usually do because you're not allowed to advertise bonuses. At inception, you were allowed to use celebrities and athletes, both current and retired athletes. We'll get into the changes of the law, but right now they're phasing that out. So no athletes or celebrities or anybody who's deemed to be targeting children will be allowed to advertise. This will be the case in about six months. So this NFL season will probably be the end come hockey playoffs. You will not see Matthews, McDavid, or Gretzky doing ads. 
the market's alive. It, it's a very complicated market because in the U.S., they clamped down way harder on black market bookies than they ever did in Ontario or in Canada. There was no gray market where banks were happy to transact for you and Rogers and Bell were happy to take your ads on TV or radio or sponsorship. So a lot of people in their 30s, 40s, 50s have been in this gray market and the majority of the people lose money. I mean, the government and these operators are in it because they tend to turn a profit. I try to make that not happen as much, but net-net, they turn a profit. So guys kind of lose interest and we're seeing a little bit of a bump and a resurgence. And the question is how long it lasts and how successful it is. And Harley, it'd be great if you could also talk about the roles of its regulators here in Ontario. We got the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario, or AGCO, and its subsidiary, iGaming Ontario, or iGo. Yeah, so that's who's in charge of it. It's kind of a complex thing for almost everybody about AGCO's role versus iGo's role. At the end of the day, the AGCO is mandated by both the Attorney General and the Ministry of Finance to regulate and collect revenue on a number of things, including alcohol, cannabis, and gaming. And when you talk about gaming and their role with gaming, these are largely people who didn't have gaming backgrounds before they came. Some of them from became quote-unquote cannabis experts two years earlier and then gaming experts. And even iGo is not staffed. I have yet, and I know a bunch of their people, they don't have professional sports bettors on staff. They're reliant on consultants that usually work for the operators. One of the beefs I have with the regulators is they don't have an expert sports better whose mandate is to protect Ontario consumers from predatory practices. So the regulators aren't experts. They rely on the operators and their consultants for expertise. They've gone on record as explaining they think they have a very strong two-way relationship with the operators. But unfortunately, this business is a Bermuda Triangle. And the third key component is the Ontario consumers and taxpayers that need better oversight from experts in the field. Harley, that's an excellent overview, an excellent primer. I'm going to flip it now. We're going to talk about your backstory I want to know how you got so deeply involved in the sports gambling industry. And I have to ask if it was to the dismay of your presumably Jewish parents with all that formal professional education you could have been applying elsewhere. Yes and no. So I was always good at math and stats and I always liked sports. And maybe I could have gone the data analytics route and been uh, the Jonah Hill character in Moneyball. I was always fascinated. The Toronto Sun, when we were kids, did a phenomenal job of having a sports betting section. Roxborough had the lines from Vegas, and you actually saw the lines. And from a young age, I, I used to work. My father and his father used to run a takeout deli and bakery in North York. And my dad bought the sign, and I used to read the odds, and he explained me the odds, and I understood the math. And my dad raised me with the concept that Vegas always wins or the house always wins. And betting was something you maybe did for a few bucks for fun. Obviously, poker changed things. I got into brick and mortar poker, playing limit poker up at Rama right before the online boom happened. And when the online boom happened, I was working at 
CIBC as a commercial banker. I was a single guy in my late 20s. And I was at a point where I could make about as much money in my pajamas at home playing online poker as I could make at the bank. So I made the decision to quit my job and play online poker. And within a year of playing online poker, online poker became a boring data entry job. And I discovered ProLine. And ProLine, as we said at the beginning, was taking 40% margins because that's their mandate, very similar to lottery tickets. But they had static odds, not dynamic odds, meaning the odds didn't change. So a pitcher gets pulled, Mahomes isn't playing, dramatic line moves, they can't do anything about it besides pull the game. Also, when you're taking 40% margins, you have to come up with your own creative games to keep on getting customers engaged. And they came up with a few faulty ones. I wrote a case study on BBH on my website, a baseball hitting game that was flawed. They would allow you to parlay ties and under in soccer. If anybody follows soccer, they know the over-under is always two and a half. And about 80% of ties are in either 0-0 or 1-1, so they go under. So heavily correlated parlays, more than enough to beat the edge. Proline. Like I said, bettors in sports betting are happy to make 3% margins and the house is happy to make 7 and I was making 20% north on ProLine. My father eventually in retirement joined me on the ProLine side. So while my parents were not thrilled that I quit my job at the bank to play online poker when the money started coming in from ProLine and my dad enjoyed a higher level of retirement because of it, the tune changed at least a little bit. That's great. Well, this being the Toronto Legends podcast, Harley, we like to get into the details. When you talk about a takeout bakery in North York, I not only have to get the name of that, but I have to ask you to shout out the schools you attended. So the deli was called Joe and Rubens Deli and Bakery. It was located at Bayview and Cummer. Most people from the neighborhood would now know it as the Harvey's Plaza. There's a Swiss chalet there. There used to be a gas station that turned into a condo building. So, I mean, if that's not the sign of the progression of Toronto, I don't know what is. I went to Hebrew school growing up, associated in chat. I did all my schooling in Toronto. I went to York for economics. I went to Osgoode for law. And then I did my MBA at U of T at Rotman. I love it. A troop Toronto boy. And uh, shout out to Bayview and Cummer, I spend many of my youthful days there as well. Harvey's Plaza is exactly what I used to call it. Your bio, Hartley, says two interesting things. You have won millions of dollars on ProLine, and you have been banned by sportsbooks. Please talk about each of these, if you will. So we talked a little bit about the ProLine already. The edges were just very strong if you were disciplined and you could handle the swings. Remember, it's three-team parlay betting. And usually the value was on the underdog because the Ontario government and ProLine understood the most casual bettors just bet the favorites thinking they're going to win and don't pay attention to the odds. So I had tickets paying 50 to 1, but they would really come in 1 in 40 times. So there's my 20, 25% margin, but 1 in 40 times means you're losing 39 times for every one time you win. So if you would have seen me 5, 10, 15 years ago, during the day, I probably had 5000 cash in my pocket and I was going from convenience store to convenience store betting. And 39 days, I would lose, say, two, three grand is 100. And then the stars would align and I have a few pictures on my website and I'd cash 120 or 140 and get pictures. And I mean, 
in my office right now and I got 40 or 50 of those big inflated OLG checks for between 20 and 200,000. So that was the ProLine side. To make sure you got an edge betting ProLine or anything else, you better understand how sports betting works and how the markets work and who the market makers are and who the market followers are and how much VIG they're charging and what the implied odds are from that. So naturally, I was always interested in it and I got more into online sports betting, which meant understanding the odds, where they got the odds from, if and when they allowed for correlated parlays. So parlay betting is obviously fun for the customer and it's amazing for the sports book because they get to charge bigger margins. You get to win a lot of money on a small risk, but the odds multiply and it's hard to win. A lot of sports books until about a year ago were offering home under parlays in baseball, meaning you could bet the home team to win in baseball and that the game would go under the total. If you follow baseball, you understand the flaws with this. If a home team wins, there's only 17 half innings, often not 18 half innings. And the dynamic of games changes. If there's a close game, home teams win 60% of one-run games. Two-run games or more, it's about 50-50. So it works out nicely. There's a low scoring game and there's a close game. Odds are the home team's going to win it and it's going to go under. And if you can correlate it, it's great. That's one example of a few where I would exploit the gray market sports books back then and now the white or legally licensed sports books in Ontario. And they don't like it when consumers get the better of them. They believe the goal of the book. For the most part, there's a couple of exceptions like Pinnacle and there's a couple in Costa Rica. But for the most part, winners get banned or severely limited. Joe, the mechanic that doesn't know anything and is going paycheck to paycheck, can blow his life savings on credit cards and go into debt at these places. Harley, who prudently bets and has a lot of money in his bank account and can easily afford it, is often Nowadays, they don't ban anybody because it's bad for business, but there are sports books that will not let me bet $5 on an NFL game. And they would take thousands and thousands from somebody who's clueless and broke. Well, what's fascinating about that is I presume with your ProLine days, those convenience stores were thrilled when you would not only bet with them, but when you would cash your winnings with them. Correct. So they got 5% on purchases. They got 2% when I cashed out. I was living for a lot of the time at a condo at Spadina and St. Clair. And there was a little convenience store in a building across the street. I covered their rent monthly by the volume of ProLine. My son, when he was two, three, four, five, used to come with me to convenience stores and he got comped chocolate bars, chips and candy. I mean, he loved it. It was amusing. It was probably not ideal for his teeth or his diet. <laughs> Good times nonetheless. Harley, it would be great if you could briefly cover each of your 10 commandments of successful sports betting. So if you will, I'm going to run through them. Commandment number one, thou shall focus on winning money, not games. So the bottom line is winning money. If you if you read my website, I'm usually focused on betting the underdogs. So for example, if you bet an underdog at two to one odds, you need to win one in three times to turn a profit. So if you think the underdog is going to win 35% of the time, you've made a 5% margin because 0.35 times $3 payout is 105 and that's profitable. You're only winning 35% of the time. On the flip side, if you bet a favorite and you risk 
two, you lay one to two or minus 200 and you win 65% of the time, you lose money. So again, a lot of guys like to bet favorites because it makes them feel good. And that's totally cool if you're betting five bucks and you're giving up 10 or 20 cents of value, but most of the time you win it, it makes you feel good, all the power to you. But if you want to do this seriously and profitably, most of the value is on the ugly side, which is usually the underdog. Remember, the books want to make money. They know where a lot of people are betting. They're usually betting the favorites, the hype teams, the Malmeses, the the Djokovic's, etc. Commandment number two, thou shall focus on the long term. Betting successfully is a long-term, streaky business. You don't press because you're down five games. You're never due to win. If your mythology is good and you can make money betting sports, you can make money betting sports. And if your mythology is bad, you can't. And there's going to be a lot of noise in the short term. It's what makes these games of risk and chance so good. So the best poker players in the world, if they won every game, nobody would play against them. But because the other guy maybe gets his money in bad, but wins some of the time, it gives him hope. And human nature is to give yourself credit when things work out and to blame bad luck when it doesn't. And that goes on in poker, sports, stocks, businesses, and life. Commandment number three, I am going to call the Costanza rule, which I've already alluded to. Thou shall see what your friends are doing and do the opposite. So your friends are a microcosm for sportsbook operators and everybody else. We all know this is being taped uh, on Friday, September 8th. So yesterday, Thursday, September 7th, the NFL season kicked off. We all know Patrick Mahomes is better than Goff. And Kansas City is better than Detroit. This isn't rocket science. So the bookmakers know this also. And if there's too much hype on one side, your friends all watch. Mark my words, next week, Kansas City's not going to get as much respect because we just saw them look very, very mediocre. So whatever your friends saw is the recency bias. The sports books adjust their lines to these recency bias. And if anything, they over-adjust it because they know how the betting public thinks. And if you do the opposite of the betting public, that's generally where the value is. Commandment number four is very closely related. Thou shall read the touts and do the opposite. What's a tout? So the tout back in the day were the guys that used to tell you, bet your grandmother's house on this game. It cannot lose. It's a lock. Now the touts are everything from the media to whatever quote-unquote experts there are. I mean, if you really, really could sports bet super, super successfully and make millions of dollars doing it, you'd probably be doing it from a laptop on the Caribbean. You wouldn't be hustling. The announcers and the analysts know the game of football or baseball very well. They don't understand the odds or the chances somebody's going to win just because you played baseball for 20 years and now you're an announcer. You can't explain. I mean, we know the Jays tonight are a better team than the Kansas City Royals. But as an announcer and analyst, you unless you can tell me why Kansas City is going to win 27% of the time versus 32% of the time, you're not bringing value to the equation because you understand that the Jays are a better team that quote-unquote needs to win. Commandment number five, thou shall find the best slash safest places to bet. 
So assuming you're an honest guy that's going to pay when you lose, you better make sure you get paid when you win. I tend to use the generic guy. There are girls or females that are betting sports. This industry is rife with kind of young, middle, upper class income men. That tends to be the demographic of the betters. It's funny slash ironic slash crazy because... When you look at the sports problem gambling, you're actually going to see that it skews higher income because by definition, you need the income to bet a lot and you have to, you have access to credit. It's very hard for somebody poor to go 50000 in debt. Nobody's going to give it to them. But if you're rich or you got a rich father, it's going to disproportionately lean. It seems to be one of the only sports betting addiction and gambling problems seems to be one of the only afflictions that disproportionately hits higher income individuals. If any females are listening and they got a way to engage more females in sports bettings, come up with a business plan and pitch it to DraftKings or the score bet365. They will be all over you because this business is maturing on the male side and they need new customers. Back to the safest places to bet. You need to make sure there are black market bookies that will pay you out in full and some that will stiff you. There are online operators that are legal and licensed in Ontario that will try to bait and switch bonuses. And good luck to you. I've gotten 10 or 20 tweets from guys with recordings and they got screwed. I got screwed by uh, Caesars and they gave me the runaround and bonuses and I had to file a complaint with the AGCO and I go in. I'm a law professor and I had to, like, I don't have hair, I'm bald. But you pull out your hair trying to deal with these guys. And if I've got to do that, good luck to Joe Schmo fighting and advocating for himself. And most of the time, unfortunately, if they're fighting for 50 bucks, eventually it just tarnishes the industry. But they say screw it and they move on. Commandment number six, thou shall shop for the best lines. What is line shopping? So this is essential. If you're going to take this even semi-seriously, Because a lot of the online shops, especially now for the NFL season, whether it's PointsBet or DraftKings or The Score or BetMGM or any of the smaller ones, a lot of them offer bonuses, so you should sign up for as many accounts as possible. Line shopping means that every place offers their own odds. Now, the odds are pretty similar, but it makes a big difference. So, for example... You might get the Kansas City Royals tonight at plus 245 at one shop and only plus 240 at another shop. But when you win, that means you're getting an extra five cents. If you're betting a hundred bucks on the game, that's an extra five bucks. So that's five percent. Granted, it's only when you win and you're only going to win it about 30 percent of the time. But that's one and a half percent of margin and value that you just got simply by line shopping. Commandment seven, thou shalt honor your bankroll and manage it. So there's a big difference between being a casual player and a pro. For a casual player that's just having fun, my advice is bet smaller if you can, bet very selectively, and just make sure you're not betting money that you can't afford to lose. If you're a pro, your whole life is your bankroll because you got it and it exists and that's all you can bet with. So To make a go of it at all in this business, if you want to bet into this online market, you'd need a $100,000 bankroll because prudently you should only be betting, 
let's call it somewhere between one and 5% of your bankroll per bet. So with a $100,000 bankroll, you're betting about $2,500 a game and using a 3% margin, that's only a $75 profit expected value. So if you find four bets you like a day, you're trying to make 300 bucks a day. So that's a hundred grand a year. So you better honor your bankroll and it better be big if you want to make a go of this. Commandment number eight, thou shall never steam. What is steaming? Steaming is what they call it in sports betting. In the poker world, they would call it tilt. It's basically getting pissed off when you lose and losing kind of your rationality. We all know the guys at the poker table who are pretty good card players, but if they have a set and you suck out on them with a gutter or some gut shot straight jar or something like that, the next thing you know, they're raising to 200 bucks on every single hand. It doesn't work out well in the end. Again, it ties into honoring your bankroll. If you're a professional better and you're betting two, $3,000 a game and you go through a losing streak, really you should be betting less because your bankroll just went down and you should be betting 1500 a game. You're not due. You can't be pressing. You can't chase it and bet 5000 and then $10,000. I wrote an article on my website, Sharp Edge Picks, called It's a Loss Suite. And I talk about two, I'm going to call them mythological betters. They were both based on personalities I used to play cards with. One was named Mike, who would press and press, and it doesn't end up well. The other we called Dave, and he bet the same amount, win or lose, and he could live with the losses, and it's a loss sweep because it could have been much worse for me if I would have pressed my bets because I went on a bad losing streak. Commandment number nine, thou shall not get juice to death. What is juice? That's how sports books make their money. Basically, juice is also called vague or vigorish. It's commission that they charge on their bets. So another way to think about it is the line last night, say in the football game, was five and a half points. You can get minus five and a half with Kansas City, plus five and a half with Detroit, but it's the same five and a half line. So half the betters win and half the betters lose if it's in equilibrium. But you got to risk $110 to win $100. That's where they make their profit. Now, remember, because it's only on half the bets, their VIG works out to just shy of 5%. If you make a lot of bets, and especially if you bet into certain markets or certain books that charge a lot of VIG or juice, you're just going to pay too much in commission and fees. If you focus on your best bets, you line shop, and you make sure you're not paying a ton of VIG or fees, you're in better shape long term. And Harley, the 10th of your 10 commandments of successful sports betting, thou shall avoid uncorrelated parlays and most hedging. What are parlays? What is hedging? So we talked about the parlays a little bit. The parlay is, for example, you bet two NFL games on Sunday. You you, you like uh, the Patriots as a home dog and you like uh, to the Eagles and you like the Colts as a home dog to the Jaguars. I like both those bets. I would bet them independently. When you bet them as a parlay, you need them both to win. You're getting the same odds. All you're doing is increasing your volatility, which is never a good idea because why would you increase your volatility or your risk if you're not getting extra oomph for it? So a non-correlated parlay, no good. The hedging is even a bigger problem. So you bet a team... To win the Super Bowl at the start of the season, you risk $100 at 20 to 1 and it pays two grand. 
And lo and behold, they make it to the semis, the AFC or the NFC championship game. Hedging means you bet the other side to kind of quote unquote lock in your profit. It's not good money management because if you're playing your bankroll smartly, you should know you're going to have a game and you got to expect maybe a winning. You'll have two grand riding on something. And if you start hedging, you're, you're paying double big and sometimes even triple big. The cash outs that they offer are even worse than that if you ever go on an online site. So you got to avoid most hedging. I wrote an article. There's a couple of small exceptions to the hedging rule. I can live with it if something happened in the six months and your bankroll has depleted. Or I think I gave the example of you knock up your girlfriend and you decide you're going to get married and you can't withstand a $2,000 risk and you want to lock in a thousand. But for the most part, it's not a good idea. I love it. Great explanations. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Harley Redlick, please check out the more than 160 additional episodes available anytime. We got Gaming News Canada's Steve McAllister, PointsBet Canada's Nick Solsky, Rivalry CEO Stephen Sauls, and North Star Bet's Michael Moskowitz. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Harley, a sportsbook's goal is to balance the action. You know they are smarter than your friends. They are smarter than the media. What do you mean by that? The media and your friends are usually hyping the favorites because they're just the better players or the better teams, and they don't factor in the lines. The sports books, for the most part, are more than happy to collect their 5-6%. So they got to come up with a number that's going to balance the action. So say, for example, last night, Kansas City's playing Detroit. We all know Mahomes is coming off his Super Bowl victory. We all know Mahomes is awesome. And the books know the betters are going to tend to bet Kansas City. So if the quote-unquote true line in the game is four and a half points for Kansas City, the books are going to make it five and a half points. Why? Because they can pillage the casual betters that are going to hammer the inflated favorite Kansas City. And they know sharper betters are going to bet Detroit at five and a half because they should be four and a half. And they'll take the value of the extra point. A lot of people listening to this will be laughing right now or say, ah, who cares about the number five? It's a dead number, meaning most NFL games finish three points or seven points or 10 points. But over 2% of games land on the five when the spread is around five. And that's huge. That's, again, you're winning 52% instead of 48%. That alone, long term, pretty much allows you to break even. If you can win 52 the number is 52-4, but if you're winning 52% of your bets against the spread, plus you're collecting some bonuses here and there and a little bit of line shopping, you are more than good to go and you can grind it out. Harley, you've mentioned that today in Ontario, there are about 30 registered operators running approximately 75 different sites within this regulated Ontario marketplace. Do you now believe that content is king or product is king? Right now... Sorry, there's a focus on product. I think it's going to transition to content shortly. Product is king at the outset. You have to have a good product. The other issue is when you have Matthews and Gretzky advertising for you, you can focus on product and you can focus on casual betters. As the advertising laws get more strict, content is going to become more more important. And if you can't provide something else as a bonus, you're not going to get customers. You need a good product. You need a good user experience. It's got to be 
interesting or unique. A few of the good offerings. I mean, the score obviously does a great job because they got their app and it's transitions kind of nice. Bet365 historically and still is, is by far the easiest site to use from a consumer user perspective. I always explain to people, Bet365 is like watching a show on Netflix versus watching it on Crave or Amazon Prime. I'd rather watch a decent show on Netflix than a really good show on Crave because it's annoying on Bell to click to Crave and click the searches and this and that. Netflix is a great user experience, much better than Amazon Prime. And Amazon Prime is owned by Bezos. Like he's literally the richest guy in the world and he still can't recreate the Netflix user experience. So it's not easy to do for whatever reason. I'm not a software guy. I'm not an engineer guy. I'm not a product development guy, but Bet365 makes that user experience a pleasure. PointsBet's got some creative offerings, which is kind of fun product-wise. Pinnacle has always made good money because they actually welcome winners and they charge half as much VIG and they do it in a simple way. Um, FanDuel revolutionized the single game parlay and their margins are 10%, which should tell betters you got to be careful with them. DraftKings offers some cool bonuses. There's some different products with some different offerings. The AGCO's rules ban operators from advertising bonuses, inducements, or credits. The operators can offer them. They just can't advertise them. Harley, what do you make of that? That was one of the worst head-scratching decisions they made. Basically, the AGCO or IGO or whoever is in charge of regulating in Ontario or out, I would bet if they heard this criticism now, they'd all point fingers and blame somebody else decided that instead of allowing bonuses, which speak well to mature adults who like to compete based on price, they'll allow Connor McDavid to advertise his face, which, I mean, we're both grown men. I'm not taking financial advice from somebody who can't grow a beard. Connor McDavid targets children. That's who the AGCO and IGO decided should get the money. Versus adults that want to line shop and price shop and get bonuses. This is a retail product. We go on Expedia and if Air Canada has a sale, let's call it the vomit sale, they'll offer a deal and we they get to advertise it and then we know, oh shit, I could fly on Air Canada to Florida for 400 bucks and WestJet's charging 500 bucks. That's good to know. But somehow AGC on iGo still won't let bonuses be advertised. There's still roundabout ways to do it with affiliate models and complicated. And they really obviously know now they dropped the ball with the whole McDavid nonsense. And that's why they're getting rid of that now. But they should have done it then. I recommended it then. That was a, that was a huge drop of the ball on the behalf of the Ontario government. Harley, you've already talked a little about this, but just recently, the AGCO set out standards going forward on how operators can use, or rather not use, celebrities or athletes as brand ambassadors. How is this pronouncement going to change the industry, and will it really protect kids from being induced to wager on sports? I mean, for starters, I think the exception is, and be prepared for a lot of this, they're allowed to do responsible gambling ads. So now Connor McDavid is going to tell kids to gamble responsibly. So they're still going to see his face associated with the BetMGM product. Um, sorry, Gretzky's BetMGM. McDavid's the other one. But you're still going to see athletes. You might even see more of athletes now because they can convince themselves and or their agents can convince them that they make money and they get to promote responsible gambling. I have a feeling that this one will also be rectified in 
banned within a year. But I mean, kids and gambling is going to go on. I get text messages, especially at the start of the NFL season from family friends that know I'm a better asking me how much is a reasonable amount for their for them to load up on a credit card for their 14-year-old kid because all their friends are betting in school. And to make it perfectly clear to the regulators, I run in circles of demographics where the people make five times what the Sunshine List salaries that these guys make are. These people have fancy degrees. They run impressive businesses. They're of the opinion that 15-year-old kids should have a beer or two in the house with their parents responsibly rather than drinking a Mickey they sneak outside. And they're the the opinion that if their 15-year-olds want to bet a few bucks with their friends, they'd rather teach them to do it responsibly. So that's the reality of people that are kind of in a tier well over the regulator's head. So, I mean, it's going on and I have no doubt that a couple of them will get into trouble with it, whether it's black market bookies, whether it's putting too much money on mom and dad's credit cards or whatever else it is, but that's the reality. Sports betting is a fun vice, no different than alcohol or non-medicinal marijuana or a lot of other vices, fancy sports cars. For most people that use them, they're fun. I mean, sports betting runs into other problems because there's even more money lost, etc., And there's a certain subset that has a problem and goes down a dark path as a result. Another issue that came up during the most recent NHL playoffs, there was a huge public outcry at the volume of sports betting ads seen during the telecast. What do you think of the way that sports betting has literally been integrated into our sports television broadcast? A butcher job by TSN and Rogers. I got screenshots of a call. I was on a call with a bunch of media companies and a bunch of media people when this launched, and I told them, be careful, you're going to blitz ads, there's going to be pushback, and there's going to be banning. It happened in Australia. I was told to stay in my lane. I'm the sports betting expert. This isn't the US. There are CRTC rules. And the bottom line is, I said to them then, TSN and Rogers don't want to take half as much money from Harvey's as DraftKings to advertise. As a society, we've decided that Ads to convince a kid to consume 2,000 calories in a meal at McDonald's is totally cool, but to bet on a few dollars on a game, not cool. That's kind of where we are morally as a society. We want non-sports betting obese kids. If that's the path we want to go on, that's fine, but then you can't blitz ads. My view of the market right now is that TSN and Rogers' on-air product, for the most part, doesn't serve anybody. Expert bettors find it superficial, and by experts, I don't even mean pros like me. If you're a regular better, you find the hockey analyst talking about who's going to score and why to bet something in overtime to be very basic and primitive. And if you're not into betting or you're watching with your kids, you find all the advertisements and all the analysis annoying or offensive. The answer from the beginning, and it still is, is there's TSN 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Turn one of them into TSN Gamble. And then it's very easy for the religious right or anybody who doesn't want their kids to watch it to shut off TSN Gamble. On TSN Gamble, you can advertise bonuses. You can have celebrities. You can do whatever the hell you want because it's catered to gamblers. On the other station, 
You can have ex-hockey players telling their stories or doing whatever they used to do on air before the gambling. And now you've served both markets properly. The half-pregnant one, for the most part, is weak. The only thing that I do like is on, if you watch Jay's telecasts, they'll show kind of the highlights from other games during the commercial breaks every couple of innings. And you will see... uh, Bet365 showing, because they're the sponsor, they're showing the live betting. Live betting's obviously huge now. Live betting is betting while the game is going on. The live betting, showing the odds so people understand, whoa, you're down only two runs in the fifth inning, but all of a sudden you become a huge underdog. I I, I like that part of it, but for the most part, it's, it's half pregnant, and I don't think it's really serving anybody. Besides taking a box, and is, the truth is as long as FanDuel and Bet365 are willing to write them big checks for it. I mean, they don't care. Living in Toronto and betting on Toronto teams, i.e. betting on your hometown team, don't do it, or how do you do it with your head and not your heart? So I'm a super Jays fan, and I went through years and years, obviously, of disappointment. I was 17 and 18 and graduating high school when we won the championships and I partied downtown on the after took the subway with my buddies and in my 20s and 30s the Jays obviously stunk I got married when I was 32 and in my speech to my wife I praised her for learning to love the Jays because I was a Jays fan when it was not fun to be a Jays fan and the Jays Finally got it together and made the playoffs. And I want to say it was their second year where they lost to Cleveland. Because of the hype of the Jays, I had a massive pro-line bet on Cleveland. They were the Indians at the time. And I'm sitting there. I've invited my buddies over. I'm excited to watch a game. And I'm sitting there hoping the Jays win. And I got like 20 grand riding on the Indians. So if there's a big enough edge, I'll bet against the Toronto teams. Otherwise, I'm just a fan and I can kind of separate the two. And I'm happy watching a game with my son and cheering with him because the cheering's not going to affect the outcome. I'll cheer with him for the team he likes or the Toronto team, maybe knowing that I got money going the other way. I want to know if you like betting on esports. Apparently, this is where the most global industry growth will be coming from. I'm not an esports better. I do think that it's an industry right for explosion. I mean, the next generation is not into watching a three-hour baseball game. I know baseball games trying to correct it with commercial breaks that literally they're proud now only last two minutes, 18 times a game. I mean, they want their action way faster than that. Esports will grow. The note of caution with esports is regulating that business is beyond a nightmare People talk about match fixing. I mean, all you need is a 20-year-old kid to slip his finger a little bit on a controller. And the best esports player in the world just blew the game. So that'll be a tough one to regulate. And if anybody's not familiar with esports, you're past your prime at 26. Like, I, you're done. You're too slow. So if I'm 23, 24, and I'm one of the best esports players in the world, and I'm living in my parents' basement, and I could get paid to literally move my thumb a quarter of an inch i mean i don't know if i could say no to that and i can't imagine that most of these kids would say no so i think that industry has really got to figure out how to regulate itself now i know harley you are not a fan of paramutual betting 
but I have to say I've enjoyed the past. Greyhound racing, high allied. You ever been involved in those or have any thoughts on those? I have no problem with pair mutual betting from an entertainment perspective. It's very easy to understand for listeners that don't know. Pair mutual betting is basically you can bet whoever you want to win a horse race. All the money goes into a prize pool. Woodbine usually, who runs a lot of the pair mutual, takes 15% off the top. So they take a lot of VIG and then they pay out the rest of the winner. This is different than all other forms of betting where you know the odds you're going to get. So from a professional handicapping perspective, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to be pairing mutual. The rake is too big. You don't know the odds you're going to get. You usually get the best odds on betting small races, but then if you bet big money, you're literally diluting yourself. So it just doesn't work. It's very attractive to the operator. So I like it in the sense that if I wanted to take my son to Woodbine and bet two bucks on a race and cheer, it's great. From a professional sports better, it's not good. I know uh, I, is Lawson still running Woodbine? I know they're still hyping the Perry Mutual on that Bet365 has it. But the reality is in the olden days of the gray markets, Bet365 and Pinnacle and all the sites offered their own odds on horse racing. So you got the line shop. If you bet, I bet mine that bird at 110 to 1 on Pinnacle to win the Derby. That meant that was the price I got. He closed at 60 to 1 and won the Derby, but I got my 110 to 1. Pairing mutual offerings, I, I can't see how young bettors who are used to betting online, who are used to seeing a ticket that says, if I risk two bucks, I'm going to make $10, are going to just take a ticket that says, I'm risking toolbox and whatever odds you tell me I get is what I'm going to get. I mean, horse racing existed in a microcosm in a monopoly from 50 plus years ago, new generations. I mean, that parimutuel stuff is not, I don't think, going to fly. Harley, I got a tough one for you here. I'm going to put you on the spot. You clearly know what you're doing. You clearly know what you're talking about. I would assume any sports betting operator in Ontario or Canada would love to have you as part of their team. Why aren't you associated with a particular operator? And is it important to you to remain an independent observer of the industry? I like being independent. I don't want to be kind of beholden to somebody for a paycheck or to kind of give the company line. The truth is most of the operators are happy just to fit in and conform. For starters, they all have to do whatever the regulator says. So I know operators that have been hit with $100,000 fines. They can show you how it's the stupidest thing ever. They can show you emails from the regulator about other situations that are comparable or worse where there was no fine or there's a warning. They'll curse the regulator and then kiss their ass when they see the guys that work there because they have no choice. The regulator, it's in essence like if you've ever been to like the passport office or like worse, like, like. Like in a third world country, you're detained by the police. Like there's zero rights. Gambling for the operators is a privilege. They, it's a license to print money. You have to follow and conform to the rules, no matter how stupid you think the rules are. And they're not interested in hearing more. So if you have an opinion and you have knowledge, it, it's great and all, but it, it's dynamite and it, it's, a, it's a tough fit. It's got to be, it, it's got to work right I have no doubt that this industry will look very, very different in two to three years from now than it is today. There'll be less operators. They'll presumably 
be regulators with more knowledge or somebody taking over and the fit will probably be better at that point in time. Well, you kind of stole my last question. As we close out, I did want you to get out your crystal ball. As an independent observer, what does the future hold for Ontario's regulated gambling industry and perhaps a wave of consolidation at some point? So there's going to be consolidation because 30 operators aren't going to work. Most of them aren't going to make any money, especially covering all the fees. There'll be a shift more to content because copying product or product creativity kind of there's some good ideas out there that are slowly being adopted but at the end of the day in a copy business it's tough the content driving it is going to grow we need ontario drop the ball on shared liquidity so shared liquidity means in delaware and nevada they have interstate agreements so even though everybody's regulated you can go into a massive pool so for example remember back in the day poker stars had people betting from all over the world So for a dollar, you could enter a tournament and win $100,000. In Ontario, you're only allowed to play legal online poker with other people in Ontario. So you don't have the massive pools. That hurts dramatically. It's going to hurt NFL products. There's some really cool potential NFL products where you bet all the games. And if you win all the games, the OLG does a good job of that because they can offer pools and they have liquidity because they have 10,000 retailers and they used to get $500,000 prizes for $5 bets. So they need shared liquidity. That'll happen. I mean, if horse racing wants to survive at all, they better offer fixed odds. And this is also even more complicated because the feds and the ministry of agriculture are involved. The media companies are either going to have to adapt to have kind of specialized gambling on real sites or a third-party media company, the way, do you remember the score back in the day when it was Sportscope and then the score, and they had great sports betting content because they weren't independent until they got swallowed up by Rogers and then they became too corporate I'd like to see somebody like that in the marketplace because you could be running a betting channel going 24-7. That would be a hell of a lot more entertaining most of the time. I mean, like, unless there's a J game on Sportsnet, there's nothing really worth watching. So you'd have way more entertaining content and way more creative stuff there. Hopefully the regulator hires somebody who's representing Ontario consumers who actually understands sports betting. Because, I mean, dealing with these big companies is head-scratching at best, like some of the operators in the bureaucracy. So I'd like to see all this stuff, I'm sure... Some of it will happen and some of it won't. Well, stay tuned. As we know, we're 18 months in. We got a lot of time ahead of us. All of this has been really fascinating, Harley. And I would like you to tell us where we can best follow you, Sharp Edge Picks, and what you're working on at Sharp Edge Picks. So my website is sharpedgepicks.com. My Twitter handle is at sharpedgepicks. Sharp Edge and then picks, P-I-C-K-S, because I'm making picks on games not P-I-C-S, as in pictures. What I'm working on right now is, I mean, it's the start of the NFL season, which means a ton of bonuses and a ton of promotions, and OLG just launched a cool one at the stores where you can get gift cards, and I mean, in the last two days, I've bought like 10 jerseys for people, for my nephews, for birthdays, and this and that, because it's just a very lucrative gift card deal that I don't think will last very long. Uh, DraftKings is doing 5K bonuses and there's ways to do signups. And in my opinion, the bonus is 
probably worth three to four thousand dollars, so pretty good. There's some smaller sites with some offerings, and then in a couple of weeks from now, when guys kind of see where their books are at, or did they grow, or even worse, did they shrink from last NFL season? Because last NFL season, as you said, the market launched in April. The NFL is king when it comes to betting. But if these guys don't have the numbers they thought they were going to have in two, three weeks from now, they're not creating those numbers. Hopefully, they become more creative. There's some good product potentials out there, and there's some good content out there if they can figure it out. But if they do the same old, same old, they're just going to kind of slip and slip and slip. Well, this has really been great stuff. I really enjoyed it. Harley, it was great to meet you. Great to hear your stories, your background, your passion. And I want to wish you a continued success and a great season ahead in the NFL. Thanks a lot, Andrew. All the best. Enjoy the weekend. Thank you very much. And to the listeners, on behalf of Harley Redlick, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.